Um, anyone need one of these? I'm guessing most who have been coming have one of these, but if not, let me hand out to any. All right, so uh, for those who are uh, newer to the class, uh, we've been going through um, this little outline to help us think through difficult issues in the church and ways that are informed by the Christian faith and Christian tradition. Uh, so rather than just um, pulling out a few proof texts or um, appealing to a few platitudes uh, or just saying, I feel this or I feel that, uh, we are asking how these uh, matters that we're addressing, um, how they might uh, fit within the biblical plotline. Um, how the larger witness of Scripture, uh, the coherency of Scripture, might help inform this, how the rule of faith, which we have here as the Apostles' Creed, uh, might give us some framework for thinking through this, um, and then um, we have that acronym SEARCH at the bottom to remind us that this practice uh, requires us to be um, shaped by the Spirit, uh, to listen to uh, personal and communal experience, to pay attention to the Christians who've gone before us, to bring in critical thinking, uh, to listen to the community, both uh, our local community and the global community, and uh, to have humility in all things. Um, so today, um, I was actually talking to, to David Dewar about this uh, a couple days ago. Last few weeks, uh, as we walked through thinking through uh, women in ministry, uh, I thought it was very productive, but it was also kind of exhausting for me uh, to, to try to do that in a way that was uh, very uh, respectful to both sides and uh, knowing that it was a, a difficult issue for some. And so I told him that I just, he asked me what we were doing this week, maybe it was a Thursday or Friday, and I said, I haven't, I can't motivate myself to think about it because I'm so <laughs> exhausted from the last three weeks. Um, so... Uh, I got some, some work done and some stuff off my plate, and uh, I decided we might tackle um, this week, maybe this will bleed into next week, um, uh, the issue of some things on science and faith. We have a whole class dedicated to this here at Otter Creek this semester, so I, I don't feel the need to go at, into as much depth. And we talked about this some last year if you were in our class, um, and so I felt maybe it would be a little bit safer and uh, less difficult to, uh, to get into some of this. So, um, in particular, we'll be focusing on uh, the supposed conflict between um, science and the biblical accounts of creation. So, how do we, how do we make sense of, uh, especially Genesis 1 and 2, in light of the, um, the majority, not, not total, but the majority scientific consensus uh, that... Um, the universe began with something like a Big Bang 14 billion years ago, and, um, and biological evolution is what eventually led to uh, human species. So, what do we do with that? Um, do we just ignore uh, the majority scientific consensus? Um, do we just say... Whatever science says, we're going with, regardless of what the Bible says, or is there a more nuanced way 
that we can um, listen to the findings of science and also hold a high view of Scripture as God's special, sacred, authoritative revelation. So if we're following through our map, a good place to start uh, is that simple framework we get in the Apostles' Creed. So that first line, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So the rule of faith positions us from the very beginning uh, to see that uh, God is the creator of everything. So heaven and earth is meant to be creator of heaven and earth. That's, that's all things. So this already positions us um, in a place where we can't say um, that, uh, that the world is here by accident. This was all chance. Uh, the Big Bang happened on its own. Uh, whatever we say as Christians, God is behind it. Um, we can get this language that's really important that God is transcendent. So God's transcendence for our purposes, we'll think of as, as a way of uh, capturing how God is distinct from his creation. Uh, what God creates is not, um, maybe how can I back up? Um, so pantheism. Pantheism is the view that everything is God. Uh, so that whatever we might think of as creation is just parts of God. That is distinct from the Christian view where where the Christian view is that God, as the creator, creates something that is other than God. Um, it is distinct from God uh, because he is transcendent. He is not dependent on creation. He is not captured by creation. Um, he is eternal. He is in control. He is sovereign. All those kind of important things. Um, so that, that might help position us a little bit there. As we continue on the creed, we see um, the reference to Jesus, uh, his incarnation, his taking on flesh, um, his suffering and dying. And if we think about the biblical plot line as well, we see that God is uh, consistently intervening and caring for his creation. And so Christian tradition holds two things in, 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 um, in tension. Uh, that's God's transcendence and God's imminence. That is, God is distinct from his creation, but yet he is present and sustaining his creation. So it's not pantheism where God is, is part, kind of captured in creation. He's distinct from it. But it's not deism either, where God is just so distant as to be completely uninvolved. So the Christian witness is not pantheism or deism, it's transcendence and eminence. God is distinct from, sovereign over his creation. And yet, he is present. He is sustaining. If God is not present in his creation, then creation ceases to be. All source of life comes from God. Questions about this kind of framework to get us, to get us going? And how that positions us in a way that's distinct from atheism, there is no God. Deism, uh, God is transcendent, but he's not present, or pantheism. Uh, God is imminent, but he is not transcendent. So this kind of positions us here at the very beginning and how we might think about um, God and creation as we enter into this um, 
this discussion about uh, how scientific findings or beliefs about Big Bang and evolution might inform. Would you characterize that with one word? In other words, we write off atheism, we write off deism, but is there one single word that characterizes that? I don't know what it is. If there's probably a word. I wish this is when it's nice to teach with Lauren White because she always has the vocabulary that I don't have. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know what that is. Um, Christian. <laughs> this, is, this is a very Christian uh, view. And it, it's not as though um, Christians were um, just taking over the majority view of the day either. This fits a Jewish view of things, uh, but this is not a Greco-Roman view of things. Um, so they are already kind of getting some elbow room in that ancient culture um, and invites us to do the same. All right. Um, if, if we move on... Was there, was there another question? Uh, yeah. Because the word I heard, I think similar, or I would ask if you think it's similar. So not pantheism, panentheism. Panentheism um, is still not quite Christian. Okay. Um, it's still going to have God, as I understand it, God is kind of found in all things. Um, but so, but also separate. Yeah. I think of it as being still absorbing God too much in things, um, but it's like a step removed from pantheism. But this is that's the limit of my being able to 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 uh, to speak on on the language there. Um, one of the things that's important about recognizing um, something like God's transcendence and His eminence uh, in pantheism, one of the big problems that shows up is that everything reflects the character of God. Not just the good things, disease, war, sickness, death, those are all part of God and pantheism. Uh, and so um, what, what God's transcendence protects is how God can create something uh, that might be not God uh, and might not reflect the character of God. So even though it might find somehow its origin in God, uh, that when God endows the created world with freedom, it has the freedom to reflect something other than the nature of God. So death and sin and evil are not reflecting the character of God as they would seem to have to do in pantheism. They can be reflecting something um, ungodly, opposed to God, uh, that was made possible by the freedom uh, granted to creation. Others? Okay, so if we're moving through, um, and because we, we went through the biblical plot line a lot last uh, last year, um, and we went through the rule of faith a lot last year, it seems like the coherency of Scripture is, is yet, the, again, the place where we might, um, we might focus our attention. So if this gives us some sort of framework for um, kind of big picture thinking about God's relationship to creation, what about the small, smaller picture, particularly um, with the question of science and faith? Um, the issue is going to be something like, how relevant is the timeline and mechanics of creation to uh, the biblical witness? That is, can Scripture allow for a 14 billion year old cosmos? Can Scripture allow uh, for uh, the slow unfolding of events uh, of evolutionary biology? Or um, would Scripture... Um, uh, disallow this by saying, no, it must be a seven 24-hour day creation. It must be an instantaneous creation and not something that has evolved over time. 
So uh, as we're thinking about the coherent witness of Scripture, uh, I will start by saying, uh, maybe something you're going to get tired of me saying, is that it's not always clear um, uh, how we interpret this. One thing, um, if we just back up for a second from Genesis 1 and 2, which is so often the focus, uh, we might see passages like uh, Psalm, Psalm 24, 1 through 2, or um, Proverbs 8, 22 through 31, or Job 26, I think 7 through 13. The reason I highlight these, um, there are others we could go to, but these are other references to God's creative acts. So for instance, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it... Uh, that's great. Uh, yeah, yeah. Of all the things that could have come on, uh, yeah, that was, that was. You got lucky. Um, to Psalm twenty-four, uh, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas, and established it on the waters. So the picture in Psalm 24 sounds like you've got the earth is floating on the seas, which is a very ancient picture of how uh, the world was. So they didn't have this kind of round globe uh, like we do. The uh, popular ancient mindset was that you have the land that is on top of the waters. Uh, And you see that in Psalm 24. Or if we go over to Proverbs 8... Twenty-two. This is celebrating the presence of wisdom um, in God's creative work. The Lord brought me forth, me wisdom, as the first of his works, before his deeds of old. I was formed long ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, and here maybe particularly pay attention, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. All of this in Proverbs is picking up on an ancient kind of cosmological mindset. You've got the earth above, sea below, and you might have these kind of pillars holding things in place or pillars above establishing the heavens that sit upon it. When we read uh, Psalm 24 and Proverbs 8, uh, most of us are inclined kind of naturally to say this is borrowing poetic language, or this is in the wisdom literature of Proverbs. <coughs> we don't feel the need to defend this as a scientific description of creation. 
Um, I don't know anyone who's going around saying that there are kind of pillars of the deep or that the earth is floating upon um, uh, the waters. Um, instead, we kind of instinctively recognize when we're working in something like poetry of the Psalms or the wisdom literature of Proverbs um, that there's something more metaphorical being described here. This is not, I am not at all, nor do when we read this, nor are we saying something like scripture isn't presenting truth. We just realize that the truth that it's communicating is not a scientific account of creation. So in Proverbs 8, the truth it's communicating is that wisdom was there throughout the process of creation. And so it's using the kind of ancient description of what that might look like. Or in Psalm 24, it's capturing God's creative work and his creative power and celebrating that. That's a truth that we embrace, but we don't think that the earth is founded upon the waters or feel the need to defend that. Can you talk about the link between uh, wisdom and Jesus? Um, so say, oh. Sophia? Yeah, so like what we get in Proverbs 8 right. and how that might be linked to Jesus. Um, so like a minute because it might take us a little off track. Um, but, but Proverbs 8, uh, the vision of wisdom you get there uh, can be something like have a logos kind of feel to it. So when I think of, of what's going on, like in John, in the beginning was the word. Um, and that can be capturing language that fits something like Proverbs. And it can be capturing language that might fit the Greco-Roman notion of, of, um, of this principle that operates in the world. Um, what I think John is doing is saying, what you thought about wisdom, which was a created thing, and what the Greeks think about the logos as this impersonal thing, Jesus is the true and best Logos. And so he's neither simply the wisdom of Proverbs or this um, transcendent kind of thing in the Greco-Roman world. He's something different. Um, so there is connection, but as with so much of the, the New Testament pulling in the Old Testament, it's like saying those were just like pointers of something greater happening. Uh, Jesus is filling that full and taking it to a place that we, we didn't even expect. And now that we see it, it's, it, it's, all, it's awesome. It, it, produces worship. Um, so, uh, that's a little on, on how we don't feel the need to defend a scientific account of what we get, and you use the same kind of language in Job um, um, as you get in Psalms and Proverbs. So, what, what do we do with Genesis 1 and 2? We're content, I think, as a whole, to say... Proverbs and Psalms and Job are not giving us a scientific account of creation or of the cosmos, but is Genesis 1 and 2. Does this fall into the same category? Um, and once again, this gets a little complicated uh, because Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't neatly fit into any um, literary categories. Psalms, that pretty neatly fits into poetry. Uh, Proverbs pretty neatly fits into wisdom literature. Genesis 1 and 2, it's really hard to know how to categorize this. Is this giving us something like a straightforward historical account? Well, you get the mention of a couple rivers that are real rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. You get a reference to Adam, who shows up in genealogies later as though this is a real human. Uh, so on the one hand, um, you've got something that sounds like it might be giving us something like a straightforward account. When you have um, Adam and these rivers, 
mentioned, geograph real geographical markers, and what seems like a real historical person since he shows up in genealogies later. So for some, they say, given the presence of Adam in the genealogies later, given these geographical markers, doesn't this suggest that the rest of what we get in Genesis 1 and 2, um, the seven days, um, the uh, instantaneous creation of different species, isn't this telling us that that's all kind of straightforward as well? Well, the other side uh, is going to say, well, you're maybe moving too fast there. Um, there might be suggestions that we're getting something that's more... Um, there's, I, I don't know the right word here. Um, we'll just say less straightforward. <laughs> uh, because it doesn't fit perfect category. So what might those things be that make it seem maybe less straightforward? Well, one, you've got a poetic structure to the whole thing. Unlike in the rest of Genesis, Genesis 1 opens up with a certain kind of rhythm and structure. Six times we get this pattern. God said, let there be, and it was so, and it was good, and there was evening and morning. That kind of structure suggests um, that it's kind of got this more poetic feel than a straightforward historic feel. Um, we also have uh, this interesting parallelism that fits that. So you got not only that parallel structure, and God said and it was so six times, but you also get this, um, this parallelism in that what's created on days one, two, and three correspond to what's created on days four, five, and six. So, um, day one, anyone, what happens? Light and dark. Day four, sun and moon. What fills the light and dark? Day two, you guys are failing. <laughs> Day two? Seas and skies. Thank you. Thank you, our, uh, our kindergarten teacher. Day five? What fills the sky and the seas? Um, so you see this correspondence. What's going on in day one gets filled in day four, and day two, and day five, and day three, and day six. Um, again, that kind of poetic structure seems like it's maybe, it's not definitively, but it's maybe um, suggesting what we're dealing with is not a straightforward historical description of exactly uh, the timeline and mechanics of creation. Um, we can add to this that four rivers were mentioned, um, and only two of those actually have any geographical correspondence that we know about. Um, Again, none of this is proving anything. These are just the kind of things that might clue us to maybe something is going on here beyond us being given a straightforward, definitive um, account of exactly uh, the timeline and mechanics of creation. We might add to this a few more things. For example, uh, the presence of the tree of life is kind of an odd uh, thing, whatever's going on there. Interestingly enough, in Proverbs, wisdom is described as a tree of life. Um, Proverbs 3.18, which has led some to say, is, is, this, um, is this giving us a straightforward historical description, or is it something closer to like a parable, uh, trying to grasp wisdom for ourselves? Um, maybe, maybe not. It's just things to, 
to have out there. Um, now here's something that I think is particularly important in the conversation. Uh, that is the way in which Genesis uh, 1 and 2 sounds both similar and different from other ancient creation accounts, other ancient origin stories. So here I might point to Atrahasis, uh, the Gilgamesh epic, and Enuma Elish. All of these uh, you guys could probably quote more than you could do the six days of creation. Um, so... Tough yeah, when you hear when you hear some of the similarities, um, if you're not kind of grounded um, in in how uh, I think Scripture could be speaking to its current situation, this might seem a little unsettling, as though Scripture is maybe borrowing. Um, but if instead you hear Scripture in conversation, you might um, realize something else is going on. And if that last sentence made no sense, hopefully it will in a second. Um, so, for instance, in Atrahasis, uh, as it shares the origin of humans, they are made from not dirt and the breath of God, but something very similar, clay and the blood of a god. In the Gilgamesh epic, uh, which has a lot of overlap with not only Noah's story, but also in the Gilgamesh epic, there is a snake who tricks a man out of a life-prolonging fruit which sounds a lot like our slick serpent that we see uh, getting someone to eat the wrong fruit. Um, and there are other kinds of parallels, uh, but just <coughs> highlighting a few to help you see uh, that um, maybe part of what Genesis is doing uh, as it's telling this is not saying, here are the specific timeline and mechanics of creation, but it might be saying, this is the way that you've told the story, and here is how God uh, has showed us to tell this same kind of story, but in a more accurate way. So, for example, um, when, when we today hear the Genesis story, it might sound bizarre because it seems to be not fitting in with current science. Back when the Genesis story was told, it sounded bizarre, but probably for other reasons. For example, the Genesis story is distinct in that it's giving a monotheistic account of the origins. So uh, rather than perhaps Genesis being focused on telling people exactly how things came about, one of the things it's doing is saying, you in the ancient Near East, well, they wouldn't have thought of themselves that way, but you think there are multiple gods. There is not multiple gods. There is one God. It's, um, it's, this does not fit uh, with what you get in Atrahasis and Enuma Elish. Um, second way in which it stands out from other ancient accounts is that the, the world comes about by God simply speaking. It's this powerful, peaceful, uh, celebrating, uh, celebrative, that's a word, process. Creation is good, and God is in control, and he speaks, and it was so, and it was good. In the other ancient creation accounts, creation results from the war of the gods, uh, in particular, in Enuma Elish, the bloody remains of a slain god become the building blocks for creation. So is creation this thing that's made in peace, uh, the overflow of God's goodness, uh, where he is totally in charge? Or is creation this kind of violent thing that happens from the war of the gods? Uh, in the Enuma Elish and Atrahasis, humans are created because the gods want the humans to do the menial tasks that they don't want to do 
plus the gods don't want to gather their own food because the gods need food, so they create humans. Humans are the slaves of the gods. Whereas in Genesis, humans have this inherent dignity and value. They bear the image of God. They are with God in intimacy in the garden. Uh, and they are given not this slave task, uh, but they are given the, um, the honor, honor, whatever, the dignified duty of caring for and ruling over creation. And they certainly aren't gathering food to feed God who doesn't need food. So, in part, it makes a lot of sense when you see some of these parallels that Genesis is not so much concerned with saying this happened in seven days uh, and it happened uh, with instantaneous creation of various species, but maybe it sounds something like this in its ancient context. You may have heard that creation was the result of violence between the gods and that humans were created as slaves, but here's how we would tell the story. In the beginning, one god, not many, created something good, not the result of violence by the power of his word alone. And this God gave a dignified calling to all humans, not just the king, the only one who might bear God's image in these other ancient Near Eastern mindsets. Uh, and they were to care for the earth, not to be slaves tasked with menial labor. So if we maybe pause here for a minute to, to catch back up. There are maybe clues that Genesis 1 and 2 is giving us something straightforward, particularly the reference to Adam, maybe the reference to rivers. But there's lots of other clues that maybe this isn't so straightforward. You have this poetic structure, six times, and God said, and it was so, and it was good. You have the parallelism, days 1, 2, 3, days 4, 5, 6. And you have the way this seems to be in conversation with other ancient Near Eastern um, origin accounts of its day. Questions at this point? <laughs> uh, I love the background here. This, this makes me happy. Um, yes? Yeah, just uh, for those of us who aren't familiar with those two other origin stories, what civilizations what, what are those and how do they match up with, say, the Abrahamic tradition? Um, I, if I'm completely honest, I can't remember how to fit them all together. Okay. It, I, it's the kind of thing where I learn and then I've forgotten it. Um, so it's not fresh enough for me to be able to say. Around the same time to say, if, if Genesis was told around the time of Abraham and passed down tradition, would these stories be around the same time? I, yes, it seems to be the case, or at least these kinds of stories. Part of it, I think, is the difficulty in dating all this stuff. But, but, somewhat, yes, I think, as far as I can tell. Yeah. I seem to recall Matt saying that Gilgamesh was one of the oldest texts. Like, like yeah. it predates. The Genesis story in some ways. So part of the difficulty is knowing how you got literary dating, but you don't know how far back the oral tradition goes. And so it just gets so muddy uh, that I, I'm hesitant to say definitively, especially when I just don't know the details well enough. Um, yeah? Josh, in your characterization that you said the message might have sounded like uh -huh. this, how does the let us fit in with the monotheism Yes. So uh, the, the let us would, would, I think, most likely be heard as the heavenly council. Uh, gods um, like the angels uh, or something like that. Uh, I mean, some people think it's like the royal we. Um, but uh, given the, the larger context of Genesis, it would be really weird for it to be a polytheistic um, uh, declaration. 
So I think I think that's the most, especially the way that God seems to operate elsewhere, where he seems to be operating with angels helping him. But they're not, maybe I should back up. We don't get everything we know about God's transcendence and eminence from Genesis 1 through 2. Um, we, um, we have to add to that what we get in the rest of the biblical plot line. So if all you have was Genesis 1, you might think, is this certainly a monotheistic account? It certainly leans that way, but it's not definitively. But with the larger biblical story, it becomes clear, oh yes, indeed, uh, this is a distinct claim that Israel is making. Does that help a little bit? Yeah. Um, we, want, we want Genesis 1 uh, and 2 to be more clean and definitive than it actually is. Um, if we get really messy, um, Genesis 1, the language doesn't definitively show um, that there was nothing prior to God beginning creating. So God takes... It's, it's possible that it's God's taking what's there and molding it and shaping it. Um, and so it's only later in Scripture that we realize, oh, certainly we have to read this as God has created everything. Um, and so even if the Hebrew in Genesis 1 might lend itself to something like there was other stuff around, um, the rest of the biblical narrative um, kind of helps sharpen our reading of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. I might have missed some of your setup, but um, so I'm a simple boy from Mississippi. Grew up in a small church. Um, you know, we were just taught that God created the world in seven days. It's pretty simple. Mm-hmm. You know, I was taught by my uncle, who was probably taught by one of his uncles in a, in a Bible class, and the only Bible scholar we had in the church was the preacher. Mm-hmm. And they probably weren't that good. Um, <laughs> you know. Rural Mississippi doesn't get the best preacher. Yeah. Nashville does, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out, or do, where's the burden of proof at? Where, where do we, who, who, who has the burden of proving, do you have to prove to me that the earth wasn't created in seven days, or do I have to prove to you, that, and just the proverbial you, obviously, not yeah. you, you, but do I have to prove to you that the earth was created in seven days, or do you have to prove to me? And I, I mentioned my background because yeah. uh, this stuff is just too deep for mm-hmm. small churches in rural places mm-hmm. that don't have universities. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this gets us into a whole other kind of difficult waters where um, our taken-for-granted context for most of us in this room is going to be something like an independent evangelical church uh, to where we believe that uh, we should be able to figure all this out with just us and the Bible without needing the wisdom of the, of the tradition that's come before us. And so the expectation is any preacher in any rural town should be able to answer all questions, um, even if we're cut off from that tradition. And I would say that's part of the problem is that that's wrong from the beginning um, because it assumes that we can figure this out without the without the help of Christians who've gone before us. Um, and, and it ignores the fact that just the ability to hold this in your hand requires an immense amount of scholarship uh, just to translate the language. Uh, so what I would say is, uh, as a whole, you don't need this fancy education or anything to be able to talk about 
the, the most important parts of Scripture and to call people to Christ-likeness. That most important stuff is clear. But when it comes to navigating controversial issues, just like you might need someone to help translate the Greek or the Hebrew, sometimes we need people to help translate the ancient culture into modern times. And so I think that calls for those in the rural towns who are, don't have the chance to have that education to say, I'm not positive about this. I, I, I don't have the training in translating cultures like that. I can tell you who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And, um, but there are some gaps, just like I couldn't pick up a Greek New Testament and read it, they might say. I can't say for sure the best way to, to deal with the, the complexity of something like the Genesis account. How's that? Um, all right, excellent. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> Thank you. Um, my approval is not very worth it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is. I, you, you care deeply about this stuff, and I, I think you raise questions, and you're not afraid to... Well, you're not afraid to raise questions that I think many people are asking, and I think that's very valuable. Uh-huh. Um, when I think about sort of that, some of the same issues, <coughs> um, what, do you, what would you say to... I'm say this... Um, the need that we have or have had psychologically to have certainty over questions. Yeah, wow. Um, I think they're kind of coupled with, let me speak broadly to the Church of Christ DNA as I understand it, is that um, woven into the, into at least, especially the last, I don't know, 50, 75 years in the Church of Christ DNA has been the sense that we have to have the right answers to be okay with God, to secure our eternal foundation. If we've got something wrong there, then that's all up for grabs. Um, and so if, if everything is on the line with getting everything right, there's no way it can be that hard to answer some of these questions. They've got to be, have simple answers. Um, and so psychologically we need it, and then just theoretically we need it to be simple. Um, and I think... This is part of what I've been hoping to do with the last year of classes to say, like, we need to know what we have to get right and what's necessary for us to embrace. Um, because if we can't, if we haven't gotten those things in place, then, then yeah, you're, you're stuck, I think, in this place of having to get all the answers, having to get it just right, or feeling like, I remember Josh did this sermon five or six years ago at the House of Cards, everything has the potential for the whole thing to crumble um, and to collapse. And that's not how the Christian faith operates. Um, but it is, our, it is in the Church of Christ DNA uh, to, to think that way, I think. Not, not for all Church of Christers, but it's a common thing. Yeah, very good question. Uh-huh. We did a class this summer where we um, watched this mini-series narrated by Morgan Freeman, like the story mm-hmm. of God, and it looked at all these different topics, one of them being creation, and looked at how different world religions yeah. told the creation story. And it was interesting, I think it was in the creation episode, that the Catholic Church, they interviewed this mm-hmm. main guy from the Catholic Church in Rome, and at the Vatican, he, I guess maybe the Catholic Church position now is that, yes, the Big Bang Theory happened, mm-hmm. but God caused it to happen. Yeah. So, I just think it's, you know, 
kind of going back to the small town church, I, I kind of feel like over you know all these years we kind of take what we know at the time and try to, um, I guess maybe fix our biblical interpretation with that. Yeah. And as science has evolved, that has been harder for Christians to evolve mm-hmm. with that and keep those together, but I mean, I do look at the Catholic Church, I mean, I feel like that was kind of a big yeah. statement for them to say, okay, yeah. we still believe in creation, and God created everything, but we are okay with this kind of worldly, scientific view yeah. as well. So, we'll obviously need to take this into next week. Let me give a little preview and tie it into that. Um, Part of what, as we're navigating this, will be to pay attention to the wisdom of Christians that have gone before us. So it might be interesting to know, for instance, that C.S. Lewis believed in this, you know, Big Bang evolution. Billy Graham, Billy Graham was cool with evolution. Um, The guy who proposed the Big Bang was a Catholic priest, George Lamatra or something, I can't pronounce his name. Um, And fascinatingly enough, um, the the kind of a, a academy at the time rejected it and mocked it because the Big Bang Theory, when it first came out, Big Bang was like a mockery title of it, uh, the theory seemed to presuppose a god. Because there was a beginning, it presupposed that a god needed to get it started. Whereas the common uh, notion was that uh, creation was eternal, or that the cosmos was eternal. So you don't need a god. The Big Bang, people were like, oh no. And so even the Pope at that time was like, oh yeah, let's get on board with this. Um, so uh, there's been some of this kind of historical um, uh, rewrite almost <coughs> in supposing that uh, these things are inherently anti-Christian. Um, instead, I think that the more historical account is that the church early on was kind of, when the like, evolutionary theory and stuff was proposed, was like, okay, we can work with this. Uh, and then you had some people who had this knee-jerk reaction, got everybody upset, and then you had walls erected. But Darwin is uh, buried in a church. He's in Westminster Abbey. Um, and at his funeral, it was there's even this kind of line in there, like, for those who suppose there's this conflict with science and faith, they're mistaken. Uh, and I, I have it written down somewhere, but it was preached at his, you know, like, he should be buried here because we care about how God has revealed himself uh, in nature. Um, so, so yes, uh, there's this place where the church has learned to adapt, and part of that adaption, adaptation, is the church realizing, oh, sometimes what science does is, it's not that it corrects scripture, it, it helps inform that maybe we have a, a, um, incorrect interpretation of scripture. So, scientific advance sometimes causes us to say, have we been reading that right? Just like in the last couple of weeks we've been thinking, as the kind of women's liberation movement has caused us to not say, well, this needs to override scripture, but we maybe need to take a second look and see if we're reading that right. Um, and so in this case, you know, the fossil DNA, micro, background microwave, whatever evidence, um, has caused people to say, are these two things what's being communicated in scripture, or is really what's being communicated something like God's transcendence, his imminence, humans created in the image of God, and how this is distinct from the ancient Near Eastern world where there's multiple gods, creation is bad, uh, and humans are, um, are, have this kind of undignified status. Um, so why don't we pause it there, because I'm probably already going long, uh, or about to, and then I'm happy to take questions after, and we'll pick back up on this um, next week.